Welcome to the fourth episode of Season 3 of the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry podcast. I'm Ellen Welker, coordinator for the series. Season 3 of the podcast includes lectures written and delivered by Terence Hayes during his tenure as a Bagley Wright Lecturer. Hayes's lectures circle the work and life of Etheridge Knight, a poet who has been a muse and mystery and ghost mentor for Hayes throughout his career. In each of the six lectures we'll hear this season, Hayes uses Knight to anchor his broad explorations of poems and poetics. This week, we'll hear Hayes give a talk called Poems from Prison on the relationship between Knight and prison and becoming a poet. This talk was originally given April 2nd, 2015 at the Poetry Foundation. Please enjoy this episode. everybody. I like Chicago. I'm also a little bit afraid of Chicago, too, but it's a little intense. I was thinking that uh, DJ Rashad passed away since the last time I was here. He was going to be a big star, man. Big old star, that footwork. Anyway, uh, that's another story, but y'all look him up. Okay, so the deal is, uh, thanks, Steve. Thanks, everybody. Um, if I improvise and lecture, which is what this call will be here for, for, for many hours, <laughs> like four hours. <Okay>. But, <laughs> say as you, not me. Um, but if I read the script, which is what I have written here, then maybe it'll be done in 40 minutes. I'm gonna time it. And if I'm done in 40 minutes, then I will like read one poem that sort of is peripherally connected to the essay that's in the new book. since. Since it's here, I wouldn't want you to buy it without knowing what's in it. Uh, and then, if we're done, and that's like 45 minutes, then I'll do like three questions. But if I talk like I'm doing now, it might not be any poems and no questions, because you're just going to be ready to get out of here. All right, so, so, so let me read this. And I, I tried to put, as I said, I think I'm thinking of it as a kind of script. So I tried to put all of my asides. I anticipated all of my look-up moments in it so that I wouldn't have to look up, so let's see if that works out. Um, one day in the fall of 1990, when I was a college freshman, the first of my mother's and her mother's children to go to college, I sat in my English professor's office talking to a man who made his life as nothing more than a poet. He was cherubic and gnomic and 200% Irish, with sprigs of blonde hair beneath a blue Boston Red Sox baseball cap. He sat next to me with a stack of his poems bound by a large binder clip. I thought even then that it was strange he did not have a book, something that, something that could have been checked out from the library or borrowed from my professor's shelves. He read me his poems, and then I read him the best of my altogether terrible poems. I told him the contemporary poets I knew, every one of them from the pages of an American literature textbook I'd taken from a smart white girl's dorm room the first week of college. It was as thick as two telephone books. I combed through it like someone looking for long lost relatives. Michael S. Harper and his poem for John Coltrane was there, Adrian Rich and Diving into the Wreck, James Wright and Etheridge Knight. So when I said I liked Etheridge Knight, Fran told me Knight was an old close friend 
When he suggested I visit him in Etheridge in Indianapolis, I said, okay, as I pictured Fran, myself, Etheridge Knight, and a prison guard or two gathered quietly in a prison waiting room. My college professor, Dr. French, chose me to sit with Fran Quinn, the visiting poet, that day because he suspected long before I did that I might be some manner of writer. I thought after college, it was a very small college, I was on a basketball scholarship and minoring in fine arts, I figured I'd return to Columbia, my hometown, an hour away after college, and get a job in the same line of work as my parents. But it's true, I had been reading poems since high school. I've been bored by all the uber-white English poets except for Keats. And I've been bored, I'm sorry to admit, by the simplicities of Langston Hughes, as well as the complexities of T.S. Eliot. Etheridge Knight's poems, on the other hand, were both peculiar and specific for me. They were personal, they were Southern, they were about and by a black dude, and they were about prison. I was imagining Knight as he was in the poems, somewhere trying to make a poem in prison. So here is his poem, To Make a Poem in Prison. It's a sort of Ars Poetica from his 1968 debut, Poems from Prison, which is I think one of the current titles of our talk. So let's see. Oh, see, look, 713. That's good. That's my lucky number. <clears throat> so, okay, let's see. Here's him reading To Make a Poem in Prison. To Make a Poem in Prison. It is hard to make a poem in prison. The air lends itself not to the singer. The seasons creep by unseen and spark no fresh fires. Soft words are rare and drunk, drunk against the clang of keys. Wide eyes stare fat zeros and plead only for pity. But pity is not for the poet, yet poems must be primed. Here's not even sadness for singing, not even a beautiful rage, rage. No birds are winging, the air is empty of laughter, and love, while love has flown, love has gone to glitten. All right. Uh, he spends more than half his time telling us the difficulties of making poetry where the air lends itself not to the singer and soft words are rare, and then almost as an aside writes, yet poems must be primed. Other than that important yet, the poem by and large makes a case that, is that it is impossible to write poems in prison. Here is not even sadness for singing, not even a beautiful rage, rage, no birds are winging, and love has gone to glitten. There is no available definition of glitten in any of my real or online dictionaries. I think it's like a portmanteau, like smitten and glitter or shitting and glitten. I don't know what it is, but it's a portmanteau. It's a made up word. So to make a poem in prison suggests the struggle, the process one might go through on the way to becoming a poet. Would Etheridge Knight have become a poet had he never gone to prison? That's our first question. So I know I should have a thesis, subtle or not, in this genre. My thesis is not an argument or instruction so much as a question. Where do poetics come from? Poetics loosely defined by me as the sensibility that makes a poet a poet. So this is a parenthetical. Friends, what exactly is the difference between a lecture and an essay? I read essays that, and lectures that became essays as I prepared for this series, I decided what I sought was a tone combining Elizabeth Hardwick's personal, private, literary concerns. Nobody remembers Elizabeth Hardwick anymore. So this is what I mean. If I do this a whole bunch, we're going to be in here a long time. But she was married to Robert Lowell, so 
Her, one of her books is uh, Seduction and Betrayal, Women in Literature. So she's writing about literature, but she's very much writing about it as a woman married to a man whose nickname was Caligula. And so it's not that she's just a straight-ahead critic. She's also framing it. So that excites me. Like, can I do that with poems? Can I write as a black man thinking about, like, critically about the world and art? So I like what she does. I want to do that. But I also like Roberto Bellano, his drifting, almost plotless narrative associations, if you know Savage Detectives, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but you're sort of like, what's happening? It's just a lot of language. So I want to do some of that. And then David Foster Wallace sort of is voice driven, but it's analytic journalism. So he's done research and then he smoked the joint and then he wrote his essays. You know anything about David Foster Wallace, you know, I'm not being hyperbolic. So those three, those three, that's what I'm trying to do. So that's the parentheses, because otherwise I would have just looked up and said it. So some of what I know about prison, I learned at drive-in movies as a child in the late 70s. I saw Midnight Express about Billy Hayes, a guy with my last name, riding in a Turkish prison. So half of y'all are going to know this reference, Midnight Express, Billy Hayes, who went, he stole some hashish, he got put in a Turkish prison. I saw that when I was like eight. Uh, and I also saw Penitentiary. A black exploitation, even I think that's derogatory, it's not really black exploitation, starring Jane Kennedy's husband, Leon Isaac Kennedy, as too sweet. Now, very few people are going to know both of those references. <clears throat> so I saw both of those. I saw them when rated R was closer to X than PG-13. Prison rape, prison murder, billboard side, size, naked, brutalized bodies, I thought they were horror movies. I watched them from the back seat of my parents' Lincoln Mercury when I should have been sleeping. And so some of what I know about prison, I learned from my mother and father, my cousins, my uncle Junior. In the 80s, my uncle Junior entered the military after many years in a haze of women and small time weed peddling. He was arrested for drug trafficking after only a year or two in the army and spent eight years in Fort Leavenworth prison. He's been in and out of countless lockups, uh, countless times since then. Incidentally, uh, Etheridge was also known as Junior in his family. Born in Mississippi in 1931, he was a rambling roustabout and eighth grade dropout. He was a military veteran by 23, an inmate by 28. He became a drug addict and criminal somewhere in between those years. He became a poet somewhere between his incarceration and release in, 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 at 37. For more than a dozen years, I've interviewed his friends, former students, his sister Eunice, but the poems, despite their omissions, exaggerations, and metaphors, have remained my primary key to the many mysteries of Etheridge Knight. It's not that Knight is mysterious about when and how he became a poet. In a 1977 Callaloo interview, he told Charles Rowell, I began to define myself as a poet in prison. Before then, I had been writing toasts about incidents and about things in the neighborhood. I would make them up. When I would go to jail, guys would come around and say, hey, Knight, this was especially after supper, like in social hour in jail. Hey, Knight, tell us a tale. He is aware he has the gift of gab. Perhaps he would have realized this in the Army or before that in Indianapolis among his six siblings or down south in Mississippi with the rest of his kin. Knight was a gifted storyteller and a gifted bullshitter. He had a pair of fiction writers shown up at the prison instead of a poet and poetry publisher, he might have become a novelist. Instead, it was Gwendolyn Brooks and Dudley Randall, the poet and poetry publisher that introduced Knight to what he called legitimate poetry. In the Callaloo interview, he tells Rao, they will come down to the joint and see me. They would give me advice, and I would give them advice. 
they traveled, Brooks from Chicago, and I have to say, this is too parenthetical because I was going to say it anyway, it brings me indescribable joy to be talking about Miss Brooks as I stand in her beloved Chicago. They would travel, her from Chicago, and Randall from Detroit to Indiana State Penitentiary, where they workshop Knight's poems, according to Randall, in a small room reserved for consultations with death row inmates, with iron doors slamming and prisoners shouting in the background. Dudley Randall published poems from prison in 68, as well as Knight's second book, Belly Song, in 73, on Broadside Press. Randall is often called the Barry Gordy of black poetry publishing, except he was crazier than Barry Gordy. He was crazy enough to make not just poetry, but black poetry his business. He'd founded Broadside Press in Detroit in 1965, and among the more than 400 poets he went on to publish were the era's most prominent black voices, Margaret Walker, Melvin Tosin, as well as his close friends, Gwendolyn Brooks and Robert Hayden. Randall was among the first to publish many of the young black arts poets, among them Leroy Jones, AKA Amiri Baraka, Nikki Giovanni, Sonia Sanchez, to whom Etheridge Knight was briefly married after his release from prison. That's a whole other essay. <laughs> and Don L. Lee, AKA Haki Marubuti. Uh, he also published Audre Lorde's second book at Gwendolyn Brooks's urging. I'll tell you about that later. So, Knight would have been very willing to talk to anyone in a position to publish or publicize his poems. He had, as he says, lots of advice to give the bookish librarian, which was Randall's day job, and the lady poet. Brooks might have cut an eye, her skin flashing the same color as Belzora, Knight's mother. Her long black finger might have nudged a line of his poem as if it were a loose thread. Oh, splendid woman of the purple stitch, he called her in his poem to Gwendolyn Brooks, the second to last poem of Poems from Prison. The poems are, as Gwendolyn Brooks says, almost immediately in her preface to this collection, certainly male. They are certainly male. When I imagine her and Randall bent over nice pages like parents scrutinizing their child's homework, I wonder if they encouraged him to write about prison. In the prison workshops I've conducted over the years, the participants usually have read at least one or two imprisoned or formerly imprisoned authors. They have heard about Malcolm X. Sometimes they've heard about Etheridge Knight or Jimmy Santiago Baca. My poem, Cart Poem, which is in Lighthead, draws from a visit I made to the New Orleans Parish Jail uh, in the early 2000s. The guards led me through the adult quarters to a small room of maybe 20 or 25 teenagers, all black boys in bright orange jumpsuits. They sat like rows of traffic cones, plastic, immobile, detectable. I read poems about being in trouble, being in love. I guess it went okay. They were variously bored and stuck, like any boys in a room listening to poetry. It would have been smarter if the prison administrators had had the boys share their own poems with me rather than simply listen to me. They were supposed to see what it was possible to, to be more than a convict, that some black man made it, quote unquote. I felt like a fraud. I read poems about my family, but I did not tell them everything about my people. Gwendolyn Brooks' preface seems to speak to the qualities she sees in, my, in Knight, if not in Knight's poems. Hence, she wants to talk about them as being certainly male, but much more than that. And in some ways, her preface contradicts the notes and the comments that come up in To Make a Poem in Prison. Knight's poem claims there is no fruitful air, while Brooks, in her preface, directly asserts that there is air in these poems. Knight's poem claims soft words are rare, 
while Brooks in her preface says there are centers of controlled softness too. So Brooks assures us the poems are more than poems from or about prison. There was a poem for her, of course, and there was also a poem called To Dinah Washington. But such poems come late in the debut. The first 20 pages of the slim 30-page book are indeed front-loaded with poems from prison. So I just wrote this in this afternoon. What drives his emphasis on prison and her emphasis on like vitality? That's the, really the first word of her, her preface. She's really insisting that he's more than that and he's really committed to saying he's not. I don't know if I'll type that in later, but that's there. Like to make a poem in prison, the very first poem is called Cell Song and it gives us a glimpse of Knight's birth as a poet. He actually names himself in the second stanza of the poem, saying, come now, Etheridge, don't be a savior. Take your words and scrape the sky. And then he concludes the poem asking if anything good can come out of prison. It's actually not a very good poem, but it does show the lack of separation between the poet and the speaker that he names himself then and a few other times uh, in the book. But what follows are some of his most anthologized poems, including Hard Rock Returns to the Prison from the Hospital of the Criminal Insane. That's the second poem in the book. And really, the first poem, you know, if you think of that cell song, is just a kind of proem, P-R-O-E-M. Um, a poem that highlights his gift for storytelling. I imagine it's the sort of tale he would have first told the inmates who said, hey, Knight, tell us a tale, and then later to audiences like us. He often began readings with the poem, and so you'll see here, in this little recording of the poem, he's going to pretty much start out saying, uh, this is my first poem. I have to read you some of my First one, Hard Rock Returns to Prison from the Hospital for the Criminal Insane. Hard Rock was known not to take no shit from nobody, and he had the scars to prove it. Split purple lips, lumped ears, welts above his yellow eyes, and one long scar that cut across. I started making up this poem when I was in I don't know why that cut off. Oh, let me see. Maybe that's not the whole poem, but I got another recording of it. I'd like to read you some of my First one, Hard Rock Returns to Prison from the Hospital for the Criminal Insane. Hard Rock was known not to take no shit from nobody, and he had the scars to prove it. Split purple lips, lumped ears, welts above his yellow eyes, and one long scar that cut across his temple and plowed through a thick canopy of kinky hair. The word was that Hard Rock wasn't a mean nigga anymore, that the doctors had bored a hole in his head, cut out part of his brain, and shot electricity through the rest. When they brought Hard Rock back, handcuffed and chained, he was turned loose like a freshly gathered stallion to try his new status. And we all waited and watched like Indians at a corral to see if the word was true. As we waited, we wrapped ourselves in the cloak of his exploits. Man, the last time it took eight screws to put him in the hole. Yeah, remember when he smacked the captain with his dinner tray? He set the record for time in the hole. 67 straight days. Old hard rock. Man, that's one crazy nigga. And then the jewel of the myth that hard rock had once built a school on the farm and poisoned him with syphilitic spit. The testing came to see if Hard Rock was really tame, or who had really called him a black son of a bitch and didn't lose his teeth, a screw who knew 
Hard Rock from the shore shook him down and barked in his face. And Hard Rock did nothing, just grinned and looked silly, his eyes empty like knot holes on the fence. And even after we discovered that it took Hard Rock exactly three minutes to tell you his first name, we told ourselves that he had just wised up, was being cool, but we could not fool ourselves for long, and we turned away our eyes on the ground, crushed. He had been our destroyer, the doer of things we dreamed of doing but could not bring ourselves to do. The fears of years, like a biting whip, had cut loose too deeply across our backs. To make a poem. All right. So, well, the first thing I have here, I'm just going to make it one sentence, which is so much in that poem reminds me of uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, yeah. you know, uh, McMurphy in that in that in that movie, and they both wound up lobotomized. Uh, so Knight shows us his interest in how men around him respond to prison. He wants the outside world to know men like Hard Rock exist. And at the end of it, it becomes quite elegiac. He had been our destroyer, the doer of things we dreamed of doing but could not bring ourselves to do. And those lines remind me of Ozzie Davis's eulogy for Malcolm X. If you knew him, you would know why we must honor him. Malcolm was our manhood, our living black manhood. So I'm using it as a segue to say, in fact, four of the poems in the debut are for or about Malcolm X. Portrait of Malcolm X, for Malcolm X a year after, it was a funky deal, and the sun came. And along with the poems I mentioned earlier to Donna Washington and Gwendolyn Brooks, those four poems constitute the last poems of the book. But as the number of Malcolm X poems suggest, he is of particular interest and importance tonight. And so Eldridge Cleaver, I had this whole thing about Eldridge Cleaver and his trouser pants. You can look that up later, but see, that's, we don't need to talk about that. So meanwhile, Eldridge Cleaver, another convict turned writer, explains of the, explain, the slain leader's importance. He was a former prisoner himself. He had risen from the lower depths to great heights. And for this reason, he was a symbol of hope, a model for thousands of black prisoners. So I, I think we know that. Uh, in Poems from Prison, Knight offers a spectrum of manhood with the broken hard rock at the start and then the transformed and transformative Malcolm X at the end. So I think that's a pretty sophisticated way of putting the book together. And then between them, there's the old wise man of He Sees Through Stone. That's the uh, third poem in the book. And after that one, there's a 16-year-old rape victim who is the subject of Four Freckle Face Gerald. I think of my childhood friend, L, every time I visit a jail or detention center or prison. When he was 17, he parked three or four cars, not all of them grand, under a canopy of trees in the same woods we played in as boys. What baffled me then and now was why he took those cars. Took, I say, which is not quite the same as stole or borrowed. It took as in maybe he thought it was a game. So there were two or three lunatics, future hard rocks in our neighborhood, but L was not one of them. Not mean, not mad, but he was the first of my childhood friends to go to prison. I'm sure I talked to the boys about Etheridge Knight that day in New Orleans. I always talk about him. These days, I also talk about Dwayne Betts, author of 2009's A Question of Freedom, A Memoir of Learning, Survival, and Coming of Age in Prison. And then he also has this terrific book of poems, Shahed Reads His Own Poem. And now he's in law school at Yale. I'm pretty sure it's at Yale, right? Isn't it at Yale? So I could be writing about him. 
But I have never mentioned Stephen Todd Booker, another black prison poet whose book, Tug, I read not long after its publication in 1994. And if I had time, I would read more poems, because he is actually a really intriguing uh, poet. The book is called Tug. Booker remains in prison. He's uh, more philosophical and maybe sometimes more difficult than Knight. But his poems blend the outside and inside world, sometimes underlining the anger he feels about his circumstances. And so I just have this as the beginning of one of his poems. The poem is called, I, When a Bumblebee Bat. Only twice in 12 long years has the self in me transformed to weighing less than a cent and blended with the evening or heard ringing in my ears or seen a star do its thing, umbrellaed aloft on air. Some of Booker's biography mirrors nights, a precocious kid who became a high school dropout, a stint in the army, an addiction to heroin, a crime, a prison sentence. But Booker's crime tests the limits of the prison poet archetype and of poetry's redemptive powers. In November of 1977, he robbed, raped, and stabbed a 94-year-old woman to death. Despite the publication of Tug and the advocacy of poets like the late Denise Levertov, who was also one of Knight's major advocates, Booker has been on death row since 1978. Having been on death row now for more than half his life, in 2004, he told a New York Times journalist, writing is like a magic carpet or a time machine. I go back in time to my own experience. I can leave the cell in my own poems. Like if I was a real essayist, I could just deal with him, right? That could just be a whole other essay to think the same question, like what, how do you reconcile what he's doing in those poems with what he did you know, in the real world? So that's an aside that's gonna keep us here till 10 o'clock, so. Um, Knight's impulse is to write from within the cell. So I'm, I just, that little interruption maybe missed the connection here. Booker says when he's writing, he can leave his cell. And I'm distinguishing Knight, whose who's writing is sort of coming from within the cell. Writing is not so much an exit from his circumstances as a kind of window and sometimes a wall. Black faces are taped to the wall of a cell in the opening of the idea of ancestry. And it's actually the sixth poem in uh, Poems from Prison, which is always intriguing because it's his most well-known poem. So this is the last one we'll hear, uh, and this is probably one many of you will be familiar with, the idea of ancestry. I started making up this poem when I was in solitary one time. After being called by a member for five years, 35,562, uh, I was beginning to get who I was. The idea of ancestry. Taped to the wall of my cell are 47 pictures, 47 black faces. My father, mother, grandmothers, one dead, grandfathers, both dead, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, cousins, first and second, nieces and nephews. They stare across the space of me sprawling on my bunk. I know their dark eyes, they know mine. I know their style, they know mine. I am all of them, they are all of me. They are farmers, I am a thief. I am me, they are thee. I had at one time I never been in love with my mother, one grandmother, two sisters, two aunts, one went to the asylum, and five cousins. I am now in love with a seven-year-old niece. She sends me letters written in large block print, and her picture is the only one that smiles at me. I have the same name as one grandfather, three cousins, three nephews, and one uncle. The uncle disappeared when he was 15, just took off and caught a freight, they say. 
being discussed each year when the family has a reunion. He causes uneasiness in the crowd. He is an empty space. My father's mother, who is 93 and who keeps the family Bible with everybody's birth dates and death dates in it, always mentions him. There is no place in her Bible for whereabouts unknown. Each fall, the days of my grandfathers call me. The brown heels and red gullies of Mississippi send out their electric messages, galvanizing my genes. Last year, like a salmon quitting the cold ocean, leaping and bucking up its birth stream, I hitchhiked my way from L.A. with 16 caps in my pocket and a monkey on my back. And I almost kicked it with the kinfolk. I walked barefooted in my grandmother's backyard. I smelled the old land and the woods. I sipped corn whiskey from fruit jars with the men. I floated with the women. I had a ball till the caps ran out and my habit came down. That night, I looked at my grandmother and split. My guts were screaming for jump, but I was almost contented. I had almost caught up with me. Next day in Memphis, I cut to Corpus Crib for a fix. This year, there is a gray stone wall damming my stream, and when the falling leaves stir my jeans, I pace my cell or flop on my bunk and stare at 47 black faces across the space. I am all of them, they are all of me. I am me, they are me, and I have no sons to float in the space between. Uh, so that's his w most well-known poem. According to Jean Annaport Easton's article, Ethridge Knight, the poet in prison and introduction, Knight had no memory of his first few months at the prison. But then, realizing prison could destroy him, he pulled himself together, read voraciously, and committed himself to poetry, which sounds so smooth, so easy. What is absent from that characterization is the catalyst for Knight's commitment to poetry. Why poetry? Why not songwriting or fiction? Parenthetical. I think sometimes anyone with courage or delusion could become a poet. I know there are young poets in the room. <laughs> I think sometimes poetry is not about talent. It's just about language. Language is something everyone carries in them. And then sometimes I think there are no poets, no journalists, no memoirists, no novelists, only writers, but that could be bullshit. Maybe it's pointless to wonder whether Knight would have been a poet had he never gone to prison. He had a capacity for language. An er excerpt from his earliest prison notebook in 1963 shows a mind working much like the mind does in To Make a Poem in Prison, intimate, self-reflective. He writes, quote, I read that the seven most beautiful words in the English language are lure, allure, Lilt, flotilla, downy, moon, and love. I love that flotilla's in there. <laughs> so that's 63, where he's sort of, again, thinking what I just said a moment ago. He's just writing. He's not thinking about genre. He's just putting his ideas to page. Uh, but by the last year of his sentence in 1968, he's writing for his immediate public, the inmates who read the prison newspaper where Knight is a columnist. So oozing the kind of pride of the black power era, he writes this in 1968 when some prisoners show up. A thick fog rising out of nearby Lake Michigan during the night had crept over the walls and permeated the prison, perfectly matching the miasma in our minds. Through the back gate 
In the south wall, the young ones came, chained and manacled like a coffle of slaves. They hobbled along in their leg irons. They wore their hair long, flaring out from their heads, and tikis and other charms hung around their necks. Uh, so he was incarcerated. I was thinking about like miasma, like the pitch up of the language in that. Uh, he was incarcerated in 1960, just as the civil rights movements were sort of kicking off. And stories of his crime vary from purse snatching, I've heard, a gas station holdup. I just read Jerry Stern wrote that. His sister Eunice says all he did was grab a handful of money from a corner store cash register. Uh, he was sentenced 10 to 20 years. The time did not match the crime, Eunice told me. And so by his early parole in 68, in no small part due to his increasing success as a writer inside and outside the prison. By the time he was released, JFK, Malcolm X, MLK, RFK had come and gone, and much of the hope of the civil rights era went with them. So I'm juxtaposing that. So 68, before he gets out, he's writing this beautiful passage about these brothers. They're coming to jail, but they're like God, sort of walking into, walking into the prison. Um, but Knight's sense of optimism and activism inside the prison collides with the world he greets when he gets out in 68. So here's something he says in a letter to Dudley Randall in 1970. I came out of prison naive as far as the movement is concerned. I was and still am ready to give up my life if necessary for my people. I was committed totally. And man, I found a whole lot of people bullshitting. That really blew my mind. The same year, 1970, he edited Black Voices from Prison, an anthology of prison writing. And that title even echoes poems from prison and evidences how Knight was, at least for a moment, like Malcolm X, a model of willful transformation, a model of rehabilitation and rediscovery. In this 2011 article, Conversion and the Story of the American Prison, Simon Rolston says, quote, the tropes of rebirth and resocialization in conversion narratives abound in prison writing and in popular depictions of imprisonment, but are, in fact, at odds with the majority of prison or prisoner experiences. Most prisoners are rearrested, convicted of a crime, and often returned to prison within three years of their release. And so it was with Knight. The 1970 letter to Dudley Randall also confesses relapse and collapse. He says, quote, I'm hooked. I've been hooked for eight months now. Sonia and I are separated. I've blown the one great love of my life. And then he alludes to, to make a poem in prison, writing, I don't know how to run it down without sounding melodramatic and full of self-pity, but pity is not for the poet. Truth and love are. I stopped writing almost altogether. I couldn't be dishonest enough to write for black people while living such an unblack life. So by 1971, three years after his release, Knight was in Connecticut's Bridgeport County Jail for possession of heroin. If he had nearly stopped writing on the outside, his return to prison returned him to prison scribe. And so you can hear him almost automatically taking that role on in this excerpt, which he wrote in 1971 while he was in jail. Sounds caroom down the corridors, reverberating and magnifying. You can lie in your cell and dig the whole joint with your ears. A man urinating, the toilet flushing, a man screaming in his sleep, another coughing and snoring, and always keys jingling and bells ringing, still doors slamming, jail sounds, sounds of ice. The excerpt is taken from drafts of a letter addressed to half a dozen different people. The intervention of writers, friends, and editors, along with his reputation now as a poet, led to his release after a few months. See, I got, I'm going to put something in here, but 
little side. I'm trying to make that connection. Like, that's such a great passage. But then he's, like, rewriting it and sending it to everybody, partly so he can get out, but partly because, again, how does he see himself? What does he think his job is in, in the prison, if not to report it? So Ralston, the guy who wrote the 2000 article about conversion narratives, concludes his article with an image of the inmates who may opportunistically, obediently, or subversively adopt the conversion narrative and the institutions that use such narratives of rehabilitation to legitimize their own existence. So where does Knight fit in this paradigm that is he opportunistic, obedient, subversive when he's writing out of prison? My answer changes from one day to the next. As his letter to Randall suggests, his answer seemed to change too. I'm sure I talked to the New Orleans Paris jail boy prisoners about Knight, and I'm equally sure I did not tell them about my uncle Junior. I definitely did not mention that my mother was a prison guard. Her arms were so muscular in the sleeves of that uniform. Before she had me at 16, she used to lift weights with Uncle Junior. I know they were close. She worked at Broad River Correctional Institution when James Brown was there in the late 80s. And if I had time, I'll, I'll read you that poem. I did not tell them about my father. When he retired after 25 years in the Army, he began a second job as a guard at a maximum security prison where he is still working today. I was 34 the first time I visited him at the prison. It was a quiet new building with stalls of unfinished telephone booths in the visitors area. My father emerged from a big metal door at the back of the room, smiling and creased in his guard uniform. It was my mother who got him the job. However long it took him to be trained and certified as a South Carolina prison guard is how long he was retired. He's been working at the prison now for longer than my mother did. In fact, soon after he began working in the same line of work, she retired. So there must be maybe 30 years of prison hours between them. I never visited the prison as a boy. No prison tours, no bring your kids to work days. What does this have to do with poetics? I offer this question now to discourage you from asking it later. <laughs> what lesson did you learn, Terrence, that might be useful? Can I say I'm not interested in use? I'm not as interested in use as I am in engagement. I can't, can I? Not in a lecture. All of it has to do with the uses of solitude. Beneath this lecture, I am thinking out loud about my own engagements and disengagements, things not offered up. Poems from Prison offers almost nothing about Knight's life before prison. They rarely look back to his experiences before or after the Korean War, for example. There was a whole lot of killing and blood, Knight told the Rocky Mountain News in 1986. No 17-year-old is ready for that, so I started using morphine. I started using drugs because it killed the pain. Perhaps the drug killed his memories as well. Perhaps the experiences remain too overwhelming for Knight's poems. A poem for myself, or blues for a Mississippi black boy, a poem from his second book comes closest to what we would call a poetic Bill Dunks roman, or a coming of age exploration. So here's a little passage from it. I was born in Mississippi, I walked barefoot through the mud. Born black in Mississippi, walked barefoot through the mud. But when I reached the age of 12, I left that place for good. So as that poem's parenthetical title, Blues for a Mississippi Black Boy, suggests, the poem is more blues than autobiography. And in reality, he left Mississippi when he was about six, when his parents moved him to Kentucky. And then from Kentucky, they moved to Indianapolis, and he went into the military. So it's all hyperbolic, but it has the sort of frame of, a, again, this Bill Dunks from the coming-of-age story. 
Um, the Bill Duncherman is a genre of the novel which focuses on the psychological and moral growth of the protagonist from youth to adulthood. So Catherine Rye is a well-known example. All of Essie Hinton's novels, which I used to love when I was growing up, those are all like Bill Duncherman's. I really worked, I actually Googled to make sure I was saying this word right. Um, I think even Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man is a really interesting kind of like coming of age novel. So it's a pretty broad genre, but we don't have an equivalent term in poetry though we certainly have an abundance of poems about coming of age. So I noticed the absence of such poems in Knight's debut, mostly because coming of age narratives are so common in first books of poetry. I want to make more of the ways his poetics were shaped by his actions and encounters in the years before his incarceration. But Knight, it feels like, wants me to consider the ways his poetics were shaped by ideas of ancestry, ideas of resurrection, imagination, and will. The idea of ancestry began, the story goes, in a little cube of solitary confinement. I had just been in the hole some 30 or 40 days, and that poem came. Was he a poet before being sent to the hole, I wonder? Is this the moment he comes of age as a poet? Is this the moment of his resurrection? In a 2011 United Nations special report, it was concluded that even 15 days in solitary confinement constitutes cruel or tor uh, torture or cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment or punishment. And 15 days is the limit after which irre irreversible, harmful psychological effects can occur. So if we are to believe Knight spent 30 or 40 days in the hole and made him a poet, are we to believe that? If we are to believe him, Solitary confinement is simply a less romantic analog to Wordsworth's observation that poems are recollected in tranquility. I don't know if I believe it. Or I find it hard to believe he entered the hole as a criminal or animal and exited as a poet. Yes, poetry is a means of therapeutic expression, conversion, and as Knight said of himself, resurrection. But I fear his conversion story makes the problematic practices of imprisonment imprisonment seem less problematic. Knight's tale of discovery suggests prison is a prison work and prison works and confinement works. I remember entering the oldest prison in Alabama, Draper Correctional Facilities, for a workshop in the prison and arts education program. It's a terrific program. Adults who participate in prison education programs are 43% less likely to land back behind bars than their fellow inmates, according to a RAND Corporation analysis of correctional adult education programs sponsored by the Department of Justice. Do I need to offer statistics to convince you there is a crisis of black male imprisonment in this country? Surely you know our country leads the world in incarceration with over 2.4 million people behind bars, and maybe you know that more than 60% of the people in prison are people of color, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to offer statistics because if you need them, you should not be listening to me. We all know there are far too many ordinary and extraordinary men, many of them black men, in American prisons. There was nothing as cliche as prisoners snarling and barking and whistling from cages when I visited Alabama. There really never is. Instead, the guards guided me along a corridor banked by cells of inmates cloaked in a claustrophobic silence. I doubt there was more indifference than interest, but what I remember are the two or three inmates who leaned through the bars to ask politely, as I recall, if they could join the poetry class. It was too late. The class was already full, my chaperone guard told them. 
I was unable to find anything about how long the prison writing programs have existed or who was the first to suggest poetry could be a kind of treatment. But the last century or so is certainly full of prisoners who turned to writing or prisoners who wrote as a kind of therapy, as a kind of release. I don't know that any of us could identify a poet or would-be poet in a lineup or on a street corner. So don't think about the poetry posers in their goatees and berets. I don't see anybody wearing berets in here. Um, think of a classroom of uniform boy prisoners. Any one of them could be writing poetry for therapy, for good behavior, for art, for self-worth, for all of the above. I can accept this and still refuse the idea that prison alone can produce a poet. Knight, the poet, may have espoused prison conversion narratives that suggest reassuring rehabilitation, but the poems themselves shift between forms and registers and suggest restlessness or better craftiness born of a sensibility, not of circumstances. We get elegies, we get odes and anecdotes, we get personal narratives, and we even get nine haiku. Their subjects range from, range from music to nature, but the first concerns prison. Eastern guard tower glints in sunset. Convicts rest like lizards on rocks. This is among my favorite poems in Poems from Prison, and really anywhere, is a haiku, so obviously it was like the first poem I memorized. Knight uses the simile as a hinge that opens the whole poem. Eastern Guard Tower glints in sunset. Convicts rest like lizards on rocks. I'm pretty sure similes are not common in haiku. Knight radicalizes the form then, not only through the perverse recollective tranquility of the scene, but in suggesting meaning resides not in the image of the convicts or the lizards, but in that space between them. He shows us what it's like to live like a simile to live with the capacity to be like anything is both a poetics of empathy and a poetics of survival. Let's say between the poetics of empathy and the poetics of survival is the true title of this lecture, or let's call it the poetics of witness. In the haiku, like so many of the poems and poems from prison, night is a witness. The prisoners are lizards, the prisoners are hard rocks, griots, icons, and innocents. Witness brings to mind Knight's role as a reporter for the prison newspaper and later as a poet reporting news of the prison to the outside world. It is the news of men searching for what it is to be men. My mother saw L when he was first incarcerated. She said he was terrified, one of the youngest inmates in the prison. She spoke with him once or twice before losing track of him. And then I saw him at a party four or five years later I was standing with the less confident folk on a crowded front porch. I was waiting for the mood to disintegrate into uproar, uproar or worse, boredom, when I spotted L. I might have imagined the whole thing, not just that he looked taller and weathered, but that he was there at all. I think we have hugged. I wondered if he knew that I knew whatever it was I knew, whatever it was my mother had seen and said happened to him in prison. I know she didn't hug him, didn't let him weep on her shoulder when she saw him. That sort of contact between guards and inmates is forbidden. I never saw L again. I don't know whether he was reincarcerated or rehabilitated. Sometimes I try to imagine an interaction between my parents and Etheridge Knight. I know he would have charmed them as any uncle trickster hustler charms, but would they have identified him as a poet would poetry have made him safe enough to allow me to visit him? The truth is, 
I never even asked my parents permission to visit the prison or to visit the poet who'd been to prison. I have never talked to them about prison. I have really never talked to them about poetry. My poetic Bill Dunks Roman, my coming of age as a poet story, is about the roads I did not take. I was not dreaming of life as a poet before I became a poet. Maybe we can say the same of night. Then one day in the fall of 1990, I met Fran Quinn, a man who made his life as a poet. He gave me his phone number after little more than reading my poems. He insisted I visit him in Etheridge in Indiana during the Christmas holidays. I said, okay. But when the holidays neared, I backed out. I was busy, I was afraid, I couldn't imagine it. I couldn't imagine my parents would allow it. I couldn't imagine traveling to Indianapolis. I couldn't imagine what I'd say to Etheridge Knight. I promised, Fran, I promised Fran I'd come during the summer or maybe during spring break, bullshitting him. It was a promise I never got to break in any case. Just before spring 1991, cancer took Etheridge Knight away. That's it. That was Terrence Hayes giving his lecture, Poems from Prison. Hayes's book, based on his Bagley Wright lectures, To Float in the Space Between, A Life and Work in Conversation with the Life and Work of Etheridge Knight, was published by Wave Books in 2018 and is available for purchase at wavepoetry.com, via bookshop.org, and at your local independent bookstore. The Bagley Wright Lecture Series is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions and organizations nationwide. To have episodes delivered directly to your device as soon as they're available, subscribe now. Visit us at our website bagleywrightlectures.org for more information about these and other lectures by Joshua Beckman, Dorothea Lasky, Timothy Donnelly, Srikant Threddy, Terence Hayes, Rachel Zucker, Cedar Saigo, Renee Gladman, Lisa Jarno, and Douglas Kearney, as well as links to supplementary materials on each lecturer's archive page, including selected writings and a link to available books. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker, with help from Caitlin Airy Johnson. Thank you to the Poetry Foundation for originally partnering with us on this event, and thank you for listening. Music is I Recall by Blue Dot Sessions, from the Free Music Archive, CC by NC.